This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. I am excited. Today we have the CEO of Heart and Paul, David Lassis. Goes by Dave. Dave has been in the retail and restaurant industry for over 20 years. He's an expert at scaling companies. He's about to really scale Heart and Paw. I am excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. So, Dave, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, even as a kid, um, you know, everyone talks about side hustles these days. When I was a kid, I had side hustles. They just weren't called that. And it was always about entrepreneurship and it was always like building businesses. When I was a kid, I started a thing called Leaf It to Us, raking leaves. It was just me. But then I hired my brother, right? Then I started in college, I started a cleaning company. And it was like, I was just going to make some extra money. It started growing and I hired several people to start cleaning houses. And so it's kind of like, then I got into quote, the real world, although you could say that that was still the real world uh, after college and really have just been involved in growing companies Every, every, every place I've worked has been growing a business and I just love doing it. It's like, it's, it's just my passion. Leave it to us. That is fantastic. You know, you, you mentioned that growing businesses, one of the things today that I think is different than leave it to us today, it seems like, and I've heard this before. I I think Gary Vaynerchuk says this, uh, it's, it's easy to raise money. It's hard to make money. You know, I don't think leave it to us got venture capital. <laughs> and today there's a lot of businesses that the way they scale is through private equity or venture capital. And what do you think about that versus the leaf it to us model by growing through cash flow and, you know, the old fashioned way, maybe getting a bank loan and, and, and that world versus what's going on in the world with all this VC and private equity money. What's your take on it? Um, you know, my last company insomnia cookies was not, it was private investors. It wasn't VC. It wasn't PE. And I mean, there, there's a different culture around that. Um, you know, when you when you have PE and VC, there's a lot of eyes on you, a lot of questions. Um, and and when the and it's a different type of money. You know, there, there's just a different approach in the business. And uh, having been through both, I mean, I've been through where you know you're putting everything on your credit card and you're hoping that you have more customers. That was some of the earlier days in Insomnia. My myself and the founder and CEO Seth, you know, there were times early on where because we did it once we had money, we raised some money, he raised some money, and then the rest was just taking existing cash flow and pouring it back into the business. Um, and there was no you know time horizon or um, it was just like let's just keep growing this thing. Um, so it's just a different mindset. It's a different mindset. Um, you did bring up a good point about um, it's easy to raise money but hard to make it. You know, I think the thing I like about growing businesses is that I'm not scared of the unknown. And a lot of people like consistency, structure, a process in place. I like to build the structure with a team. That's how I think about it. And like some people, that's just not for them. They want structure. They want the known. I'm sort of the opposite. And so that's why I just thrive in it because I'm like, okay, this is a problem. All right, let's solve it. Who do we need to help solve this? And then we just go ahead and tack, tackle it and, and solve it. 
really cool perspective given you've been on both ends and, and, and the clear distinction between heart and paw and insomnia cookies, uh, where you are today and where you were yesterday. So th- I appreciate the insights. We're going to come back to some things like this and, and, but let's talk about Dave for a second. Okay. So Dave, I got three questions. We call this section, clear the air, get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Uh, I, I'm hoping I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Question one. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Well, okay. So um, I, I, I like playing baseball, but I, I'm not great at sports. So, you know, my kids are, are signing up for baseball. All three are playing baseball. And it's like, you get that email that says, do you want to be the coach? Right? <laughs> and it's like, that's like Wim Junction. It's like, do I sign up or do I not sign up? So I did not sign up, but my fear was that I wouldn't be a great coach. And actually my youngest son's team was short coaches. And it was like, it wasn't going to be a fulfilling experience for the kids. So I volunteered and I is the first time I've ever coached really any team, like, you know, in a sport. And I was actually surprised at how much I actually knew about it and felt really comfortable. Um, but it's not something that I was like, I'm going to sign up. I'll be the first coach. Um, but that, that's, been, that's been fun this spring. You hear a lot about people applying sports lessons to business world. Yeah. Were you able to do the opposite? You, you've run companies. Were you able to take business lessons and apply them to sports coaching? Listen, I, I don't, I don't think my fear was like motivating little kids or like, make, <laughs> like high fives. It was like, <laughs> do I actually know how to help a kid hold a bat? Right. I mean, that's, this was like, there's a difference because both are team building, but I actually needed to be a subject matter expert to be a coach or close to it or fake it. Right. Um, and I, I realized that my, my baseball skills, at least for a, a five-year-old's t-ball team, I can hang, right? I don't think I could coach my oldest son. I, I don't I don't think I know enough. Understood. Understood. And how old's your oldest son? Uh so I've got uh five, seven, and nine. All right. All right. Okay. Second question. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? Uh I got one. Okay. People always say, like, oh, I like to sit down and read a book. It's really relaxing. Right? A lot of people <laughs> say that. I can't sit still. <laughs> I can't read a book. I read like three lines and it's like, I I'm on to the next thing. So I, I just, that, that's sort of the, you know, you, you hear things like someone has ADHD or they're hyperactive or they got lots of ideas, put, I guess, put me in that bucket. I, I just sitting down reading a book that doesn't relax me. I'm just not relaxed at all. I, I don't know why, but uh, not for me. I, I, I understand. I am a voracious reader, but I understand the I can empathize with the struggle to sit there and just and just read. Have you gotten into audible or so, audiobooks? I was just about to say, like, if I'm in the car um, and if I'm not on, you know, if it's a if it's a work time, I'm usually on the phone. Um, but if I'm not audiobooks, I can do I can listen. But to sit down and turn the pages and stare at it, I, I just can't doesn't work for me. So audiobooks have been a win. One of the skills that and we're going to talk about a skill next that I had really wanted to learn and 
never did was speed reading. I don't know if it's necessary today, but I I think a little bit it might be, and it would be interesting to be able to speed read. Anyway, that brings me to the following. What is one skill you don't possess but wish you did? I can't sing. (laughs) When when I was a kid, I played a musical instrument, and um, they were trying to recruit me into the chorus. And I I was just like really hesitant because I knew I did not have a singing voice. They put me in there anyway, and it wasn't pretty. It didn't last long. (laughs) You know, being karaoke or just like singing. I mean, I'd love to do it. I just I'm just it's not for me. Yeah, I'm not I'm not good at the arts. I'm not musically inclined at all. I like to listen to music, but not musically inclined. So I understand. Yeah. All right. So back to business. Heart and Paw. Tell us about who Heart and Paw is, what you all are doing today, and what's the future look like for Heart and Paw? That's a lot. Give me whatever you can on that. Sure. Well, um, I mean, Heart and Paw was founded several years ago by by a group of, of veterinarian, you know, um, veterans of the veterinary industry. And the idea was to create a unique offering in the veterinary space. You know, if you look around at the veterinary space, you don't see a lot of multi-unit brands, right? You mean, you might see, um, you know, Banfield is in a PetSmart, right? That's that's most traditional um, when you see multi-unit, but you don't see multi-unit in most shopping centers. It's a lot of a veterinarian started a business 10, 20, 30 years ago, and then they sell to another veterinarian. Um, that's the most common. Now there's been some consolidation in the industry and we can talk about that in a minute, but to actually build a retail brand is what we're doing at Heart and Paw. Now we, um, you know, sort of got our most of our growth started coming right at the height of like COVID. We had three locations open last March, and so on the one hand, you'd say, well, people started adopting pets like at an all-time high. Yeah, that that's that's true. But if you have no brand recognition, no one's ever heard of you, and you can't do a grand opening because you can't have really anybody gathering, it's kind of like you running and somebody like putting their foot underneath, like, and tripping you. Um, so, you know, everyone talks about the industry growing, but it, it is not an easy thing to do. In fact, similar to many other retailers, COVID has been really a, somebody tripping you from behind. Um, so, you know, what that what does that translate into? Most retailers, if they had a robust pipeline, tried to delay deals, et cetera, we're not alone in that. I mean, we, we had to, everybody in the past 15, I guess 14 months had to rethink things, right? How do you go to market? What services do you offer? And then they all hope to come out on the other side. And now, you know, some of these retailers, you know, like grocery stores, it seems like they did great. Everybody was like not going to restaurants because most of them were closed in many parts of the country. So grocery was doing well. So the grocery retailers are like, hey, we're doing well, let's keep growing. A lot of other retailers didn't have that benefit. Um, so <clears throat> we're hoping to continue our growth. Um, you know, it, it, the last year has been tough, but we've overcome a lot of challenges, similar to most retailers. Um, and then we have another side of the business. It's really like a completely separate side of the business, which is that we acquire practices. So we acquire the practices that I just spoke about, where it's somebody who started a practice 10, 20 years, and we help transition in them retirement. However, something we're doing that other people are not, <clears throat> they're part of that heart and paw brand. We don't, you know, immediately say, oh, we acquired it, we're calling it a heart and paw. I mean, a true heart and paw looks and feels very different. However, we do give them the tools 
to succeed. We have a website. They have a presence on it. There's a booking tool. There's systems that we install that are the same in both places. So we actually have a bifurcated growth plan. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're trying to do something that other people are not doing. And if they are doing it, we're trying to do it differently. A lot of great stuff there. Uh, I have a few questions. I'll start with the end. Is the goal to end up putting heart and paw on the front of the, on the sign band of those acquired veterinarians? It's not, I mean, we have, we keep their legacy alive. However, we do, we do have like a, I mean, the the most notable thing would be a plaque near the front door that gets, you know, attached to, to the outside where it says, you know, partner of heart and paw, similar to the uh, Starbucks, you know, licensed by Starbucks or, you know, that type of thing. It's not a franchise. I mean, we're either owning them outright or it's a joint venture, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's not like, you know, pull the label off or there's like a ticking clock where it like, you know, two years and we change it. Um, we really just give them support systems and tools that they didn't have. If they want to convert it to a full heart and paw, will you work with them to do that? Um, we'd keep an open mind. It hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, people build like, you know, most entrepreneurs of a single retailer service business got a lot of pride, a lot of legacy. Um, it could be detrimental actually. Sure. Yeah. It could be detrimental because you're used to going to see a certain doctor and if they change their name, you're like, what is this place? Who, who, who owns this? Is my doctor still here and all that? And like, it actually can create a consumer friction. Um, you know, listen, there's situations where if we buy a practice, a doctor retires and, you know, it's years away, you know, years past, we may want to rebrand it. Um, however, we'd want to bring in those like crucial elements of a heart and paw, which is, you know, modern, a forward design geared towards, you know, a specific type of consumer, et cetera. Um, it, it's got to really make sense to do it. Understood. Oh, that's helpful. Backing up a little bit. So pre-pandemic, how many heart and paws were there in the United States? Um, well, I'll say to- total centers, there were six. Um, and then we had, you know, ambitious plans like, you know, most people do uh, in the coming year, to, in, t- in the year 2000. And, and we said, you know, we're going to go to 20 to 25 in this year. And then the breaks, you know, just like, I mean, listen, the, the mid-March, the world got really weird last year. Yeah. And, yeah. and you just, you're like, okay, this will pass. You know, everyone's going to be home for a week. Then it's like, wait a minute. I don't know if this is passing. What is going to happen here? And so we really put the brakes on everything. I mean, everything kind of got halted by the end of March. We weren't acquiring anything. We weren't opening any of the sites. Construction was underway in certain places. It was paused because, you know, cities and states just said you can't build. And so it got really weird. It was like, what are we doing? And it's like, it was like freeze, but wait, you got liabilities. You need to pay for things. You need to grow sites that you're planning on growing, but people can't come in. We've been curbside for 14 months. Cur- like, and, and like the uniqueness of a heart and paw, among other things, is the modern facility. There, we have a couple of facilities that nobody's ever stepped foot in as a consumer ever. Wow. You weren't an essential business, so you weren't allowed to open your doors like a doctor's office or a grocery store. Yeah. I mean, you know, we look to the AVMA, which is, you know, the American Veterinary Medicine Association, and they're the one who gives this guidance um, on, you know, what they're sort of the gold standard. Right. I mean, there's 
you know, similar to the National Restaurant Association and all the little statewide things, they're really the guidance for what the expectation is. Um, and, you know, we weren't considered, there was debate, are we essential in the beginning? And we couldn't do, sur- you know, surgeries. And it's like, well, if you need to do a surgery, what's considered essential, what's not? I mean, every business faced some version of what I'm saying, whether it was surgery or it was- You got it, yeah. It's like, everybody was faced with this. And like, literally it was like Groundhog Day. Every day you woke up and it was a new adventure because, you know, you had states and cities changing rules, like literally overnight. And it's really hard. Listen, like, you know, if you hear about a law that's going to affect your company and it's like six months to a year out, usually it's a year, right? Or like next, you know, next January, you have time to plan. You don't have time to plan when the rules change every day. So it just makes it incredibly hard for anybody, not just our business, anybody. There's not a single person who hasn't been affected in the past 14 months in some way, shape or form about how they go about growing their business, how they live their life. Their kids are home from school. They're not home from school. Camps get canceled. I mean, the entire world has been affected by this. Totally. That said, we're in April 2021 now. Are you seeing improvements? We are seeing improvement. We do hope to open our locations in the next couple of months. It seems like, you know, vaccinations and case counts seem to be declining. Obviously, we're optimistic, like I think most people in the in our country and in the world. Um, so I, 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 you know, there's there's rebounding happening, um, and you know, it's it's looking up. But I'm I'm still I think we're all sort of on eggshells, right? Because you just don't like you can start you could see a huge spike and then like the world can shut down again. And so it's like, you want to be aggressive, but you're also tiptoeing. And it's like that balancing act between being super aggressive and being scared. Can't be scared and be successful. Can't be too aggressive and be successful either. Got to kind of find a midpoint. Totally. Totally. And how did Hart and Paul come to at six locations to be private equity Backed. That's interesting. That's very small for private equity. You know, what was the average unit sales? They must have been huge for private equity to get interested. Well, actually, they got uh, involved before it was founded. Uh, yeah. So the private equity group we work with, which is Wad Capital out of Chicago, um, they actually they lo- they find founders or CEOs um, in an industry that they've done a lot of research on and back that to either start a business or acquire one and grow it. So it's a very specific strategy, which is a little different than maybe traditional PE where they're just, I don't want to oversimplify PE, right? But they buy something, they grow it a bunch, and then they sell it. This is a different model in the marketplace. Interesting. So they found you? Well, actually, so um, I, I was uh, I was at Insomnia Cookies. Um, we had sold the business and I was there about a year and it was you know time to, to move on. And I was, uh, I'll say I was hunted, um, which always makes people feel good, right? Um, And so I joined this company to help um, the founders take it to the next level. Um, And so I joined when there were six, um, and then we've grown since that time. um, And now we're starting to, you know, gain some traction here as, as things rebound in vaccines and case counts. Wow. So, and so... All six are, you know, pre not including pandemic. Were they all profitable? No, no. I, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to break even in a 
veterinary practice immediately. Um, you know, there's, I, I kind of think about, th this is why you don't see veterinary practices popping up all over the country, right? You know, you think about restaurants, there's a very low cost for entry if you take over an existing restaurant, right? You can paint, change a couple pieces of equipment, and boom, if you're a mom and pop. Um, it's not so easy with veterinary, right? You got a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. You've got a big construction cost, lots of plumbing. You know, it's basically like a medical tenant. Um, so it, it takes a lot, but you also have to build a clientele, which is not an easy thing to do. But that's the reason that, you know, you're not seeing a lot of people. You've seen people try to do that. Um, but a freestanding veterinary multi-unit practice, you just don't see many. I mean, that's I, true. I, I know I like I know the ones, but they're very, very few. There aren't many that have tried to scale it because it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, listen, growing something past one location is hard in general. When you add the veterinary element to it, it it's it's hard. It's really hard. You got to you got to build it efficiently. You got to operate it with a reasonable cost structure and you got to build a customer base, client base, and you got to have great doctors. I mean, if you don't have great doctors, you're not going to build that client base. It's hard. It's really hard. That's why not everyone's doing it. Yeah. You're, you're not, you're not getting me excited to want to jump into the veterinary business. That's for sure. <laughs> it, listen, it's, it's a great, it's a great business to, you know, if you think about, listen, think about, are you a pet owner? I am not. Okay. So, Listen, I wasn't a pet owner as a kid. I owned a goldfish because that's all my parents would let me have. And then when I graduated college, I got a dog and I've owned dogs ever since, right? But if you think about the evolution of, of pets, you used to keep your dog out back on a leash or in a fenced yard. And that's where the dog lived, right? Then it went to like a dog house out back if it rained, right? That was the second evolution. Then they moved inside, right? Now people are like sleeping with their dog. And so a pet has become a member of the family. And that's kind of the philosophy we've taken, which is to treat the pets in our care like family in a way that like nobody else has in the marketplace. Well, it takes a little bit to get profitable. Assuming what has gotten you all excited to expand is that you, you are starting to see growth in these locations or you were pre-pandemic sales were rising. Is that? Yeah. That yeah, it's it's listen, you know, just it, you get tripped from behind when you're in a pandemic. Right. I mean, we, I, I couldn't have anticipated a pandemic or told you what it would be like in a pandemic. But the reason that we have two separate businesses is like, you know, buying a practice that already has a successful track record gives you some strength. Right. While you focus on the things that take time to nurture and grow. Got it. What is the, the long-term plan? How many, how many locations can Hart and Paul be? Well, I mean, listen, if you, if you look at, you know, the, the big players out there, you know, that are branded or consolidating, there's really, you know, two that stand out to me, Banfield, which has, I think, 1,100 locations, right? They're in PetSmart's mainly, um, and they're, they're typically a lower cost provider. They're not the top of the market in terms of pricing. Um, and then you have NVA, um, which has consolidated very successfully. Um, I, I'm not even sure what their last count is. So, you know, if you think about that, yeah, you could say, you know, Hardpaw could have 600 to 1,000 locations. I don't know when, uh, right? I, I don't have a crystal ball to that. Um, you know, we've got certain things that we want to achieve before we start saying, okay, we've got it exactly right. 
You know, I still think, you know, if I, if, if one of your big distinguishing features is you've never had clients in the door, um, sorry, if one of your distinguishing features is that you have a unique offering inside your four walls and people have never been in there and you have people working from home, but yet you offer play, which we, you know, you might call doggy daycare, like everybody's working from home. That business line is very challenged right now, right? People who are back to work in an office or are at home and there's just too much noise, they're sending them there, but it's nowhere near. We don't know what its full potential is. So to say exactly what Hart and Paul looks like, you know, a year from now, two years from now, no startup, even at this stage can say, I know exactly everything and here's the roadmap and here's what we're going to do. If you do, you're basically making it up. I mean, listen, you can have a plan that doesn't mean it's going to become a reality. And in a growing business, you have to keep learning. Every day is learning. And then you take those learnings and you improve the business. And then you say, wow, I wish I hadn't done the last, these, you know, three things we did a year ago. Yeah, I know that one. I know that one all too well. Right. I mean, you, you lease something and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have divided this space because now I have this great tenant. I can't put them in my shopping center. Right. It's it's the same thing. But when you're trying to grow rapidly and you're trying to iterate on the business, you know, it, it could be tough. It's tough. Like I listen, I, I think Hart and Paul will be successful. I, I like I, I mean, I, it'd be crazy if I didn't say that. Right. I'm the CEO. But it's hard when you have a new business and you're trying to grow something and build it into something special because you're iterating and learning. If somebody says to me, like, tell me exactly what would be perfect in your business, right? Like, what's perfect? It's like, well, I'd say nothing's ever perfect. Even five years from now, I wouldn't say things are perfect. You have to continue to iterate to evolve in the world. Unbelievable insights. Very honest, and I really appreciate that. Where are the Hart and Paul locations today? Tell everybody, where are they today? Sure. So we have three locations in the city of Philadelphia, uh, close to the central business district, you know, where people are living, right? Live, work, play. Um, You know, as you see new housing growth, you know, most of these people are pet owners. Uh, We have two in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and we have two in the suburbs of Philly on on the New Jersey side. And we're set to open a location in Fells Point, Maryland, or Fells Point, Baltimore, Maryland, um, and then Boston, Virginia, um, which is Northern Virginia. Um, And those are going to be opening. Boston, Virginia is in May, and Fells Point is in June. Terrific. Well, good luck with those. Thank you. Uh, It's and It actually is an inspiring story, right? You got a brand that was a startup going into the pandemic, got, as you say, I think you put it nicely, tripped from behind, and, and now you guys are coming back. So I really enjoy hearing the story. Thank you. I want to take us to the past and you have a story. You were part of scaling insomnia cookies from $4 million to $100 million, which is really impressive to scale a business like that. And you have a story about one of the locations at Temple University. I'll let you take her away. Yeah. So at one stage in the, you know, my, my, um, the founder of insomnia started with a couple brick and mortar locations. And then he expanded and said, you know, we're going to do food trucks. And he was like way ahead of the curve, right? He was way ahead of the curve on food trucks, but actually operating a business seven days a week, 18 hours a day in a food truck is really difficult, right? I mean, most food trucks are breakfast and lunch, lunch and dinner, just lunch. It's really hard to operate 18 hours a day. You need 
a power supply, you need a commissary, you need, it's just very complicated. And so we made a decision that we would create brick and mortar locations versus trucks in each of those locations because we had successful trucks and we knew that when we opened in a brick and mortar, like the revenue would go up somewhere between 50 and 100%. So we, we knew it worked. And I'll tell you, you know, Temple University and Drexel University in Philly were the last two. And Drexel, we found um, a retail space, you know, it was a fairly, you know, I wouldn't say no deal's ever easy, right? No one ever says a real estate transaction was easy. Um, but the Drexel one, you know, was, was quote, easy in the scheme of it, right? Um, that is true. No, no real estate deal is ever Right. And so the Temple University one just felt like it took forever. Um, it ultimately opened, I think it was the spring of, I'll say 2016. I could be off a year or two, right? Um, but around Temple University, like they own everything. They, you know, you get to some of these places where somebody or some entity, university, a private owner, they own everything in town. And so like, you have to work with them. You don't have a choice or you just stay in your truck. And so, you know, I think we talked to Temple University for two or three years to try to find something. And it was just like an endless pursuit. And, you know, listen, every landlord and every retailer, they've got like their playbook, their rules of engagement. It's the things you will do and the things you won't do. And everyone tries to stick to them. They say, I can't have this in my lease. I got to have this. I got to do this. I got to do that. Right. Everybody's got the rules of engagement, but they also, everyone's, some people are like, I'm never deviating from this. But then there's some people who are like, listen, I really want this tenant or I really want to be in the shopping center. And you like, you break some of your rules. And I have to tell you, like Temple was one of those ones where we broke some of the rules of our standard playbook, because we just said like, it's worth these incremental risks to open this. And listen, it wasn't, it was a brand new building, but it was a fairly unattractive retail space because it had four massive, massive columns, two right at the window and two like set columns at the window. Yeah. It was like, I mean, I listen, you know, architects would say, Oh, you're crazy. Like this is a beautiful building. Like, you know, we just think differently. Right. These massive, massive columns. I mean, and we were like, what are we going to do with these? Like one, it's an obstruction to seeing inside. So we ended up wrapping them. Right. I mean, we tried to make the most of it inside, you know, everyone's like, how do I floor plan this? I can't get a column. I need a column. I don't want a column. Column can only be here. It can only be every 12 feet. Right. People oh, yeah. go crazy with this stuff. They do. We put the bathroom, the, the, the shit, you know, the, the public bathroom, like we like use the, that as sort of like a, we like designed the store around the columns, honestly. Um, but so we dealt with challenging real estate and a challenging deal maker. Uh, I won't name names, right? That, that would be unprofessional and, and I'm not going to do that, but it was one of those really challenging deals that just felt like it would never get done. And you had to deviate from your playbook and it's uncomfortable. No one likes to deviate from the playbook. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, about the deviation from the playbook. Everyone wants to stick to their playbook and, you know, you got to take risks in business as you outlined before. What was it like you have been involved, forget about real estate, you have been involved over your career in a lot of business deals all over the place. 
I don't know how many business deals you made with universities, but this was probably one of a few. You made more business deals with other businesses. What was it like doing business with the university? And like, they probably think a little bit different than a business owner or business on the other side. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, most universities move slowly, right? Because there's a lot of layers of approvals. Um, you know, people talk about real estate committees. This is nothing like a real estate committee. This is like seven committees stacked. And like, listen, it's there. They want to make sure that they build a community for their students and the professors and the community that fits their culture. And so, you know, for insomnia, um, they loved it because it was unique, but then they're like, wait, you're open till three in the morning. And so like, you know, that's like viewed as a negative. It's like, well, we don't serve alcohol. So like, what's your risk? Like someone's going to eat a cookie. Like what's the problem here? Um, So it was, you know, I think, you know, a business owner says, you know, I want to make sure I have a strong tenant and I want to get, you know, maximum rent or whatever the, the strategy is. A university sometimes doesn't care about the rent as much. They want the amenity and they want to make sure that the amenity is stable. I mean, listen, when we had a hundred locations, we had universities like, I've never heard of you. Tell us about yourself. And it's like, we still had the pitch. It was like a pitch. Sometimes they would come to us. Sometimes we go to them. I think we probably ended up with out of the 170, probably 15 to 20 were deals directly with the university. Um, you know, we were probably on university ground in a lot of situations because, um, you know, they do ground leases with developers and then developers leasing it, but the university is approving things. I mean, you can get really complicated with this stuff similar to any other transaction. In the temple scenario, were you communicating through a broker mostly, or did you actually speak to the university? So I I will tell you my deal-making philosophy. I have a lot of respect for the broker community and we use brokers. I've used a broker. We use a broker at heart. We've used a broker at heart and paw. We've used a broker at Insomnia. In fact, we built a network of like 70 of them at Insomnia across the country because listen, they know the market the best, they know what's going on. But what I have found is once you have one turn of an LOI, I like to get on the phone with a decision maker. If I'm the one doing the deal make, whether it's me or it's a director of real estate or real estate manager, I like them to get on the phone because I find the deal happens faster when you get two decision makers on the phone, you get too many cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes your broker thinks you care about something that doesn't matter to you at all, vice versa. Same thing with the landlord's rep and it can create friction, slow down the deal and even kill the deal. So I like to get hands on. I mean, the first 50 something deals at Insomnia, I did myself, literally myself. Uh, And then we hired a director of real estate and said like, this is how we operate. It's a little different but it's successful because only we as a retailer can know what we're going to say, like say is okay or not. Okay. At the end of the day. So at temple, it started with two brokers, right. And the landlord and us, there's four parties. And then over time it was like, you know, we kept like, just kept sending like red marked up LOIs to each other back and forth, which gets old. It gets old, right? You just like, you cross it off. We accept it. You cross it off. We accept it. Yeah, it's like, terrible. Or whatever it is, you know, delete the, yeah. whatever. Like it can be endless. It can be completely endless. And so I, I like pull the alarm. It's like the short, short, like short, short circuit it. Like, hey, can I get on the phone with whoever? And sometimes they say like, no, 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 you can't do that. Right? No, no, no you can't do that. Like, and then I explain, here's why I want to do this. I want to get this deal done. 
and there's something impeding these two parties coming together, I want to get on the phone with whoever my equivalent is over there. And sometimes they want to be on the phone. Sometimes they say like, you know what? He's probably right. Like you get different reactions and I'm sort of used to it, but I like, listen, I, I, at the end of the day, brokers are going to get paid and they're going to not be involved in that deal. I have to live with the landlord for the next however many years, five, 10, 15, 20 something years. I, and listen, they could sell the property, right? And it's a totally different person. But it, usually you're going to have a relationship with that person. And so you should know who you're working with. Totally spot on. It's a great approach. I, I, I imagine it's part of why you're successful. I totally agree. Brokers, very valuable and they're going to get paid and, and, and they bring a lot of value. But at some point you need decision makers on the phone to make a deal in any business transaction, not even just real estate. That's just the, the, the fact of the matter. One last thing on this Temple thing. You mentioned you broke some of your rules. What were some of the rules you guys broke to get into onto Temple, Temple's campus? So I don't like F&V deals after firm term. Um, that's one of them. Um, I, th- that's one that- And for those who don't know, that's fair market value. Yeah, I don't like f- fair market value deals because I feel like it ends up creating a big mess you know, you're like, this is fair market. And then you get like, each person gets a representative, you know, it just can get really crazy. It's just, I don't want to be redoing the deal 10 years from now and arguing with the other party. I like to set the terms of the deal up front. Um, So that's one of them. Have you gone through those arbitrations? Because I have on what the fair market value is. It's painful. So I I hear your pain. Maybe we should switch places and I can run the podcast one day and I can (laughs) interview you on how fun an FMV deal is. Um, And then we could educate everybody about how fun they are. So you're probably the expert. I try to avoid them. You seem to go through them. Very few and far between, but I have been in the arbitration. So Right. So that, that is one that really stands out in my mind. Uh, I'm, I, I can't remember exactly what the other, I mean, this was five years ago. Uh, I just remember it being that, that long deal that dragged out forever. No, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's great. I think my last question is you, you did a lot of university deals. When you're actually on the decision maker at the university, who is that person? Who are you speaking to at like, is it a dean? Like, is it the, you know, I know at places like there are some universities that have these real estate teams, but like who at Temple, who was it? Who were you actually dealing with? You know, I'm not sure what her actual title was. It's typically like a VP of real estate, a director of real estate. Sometimes real estate and facilities fall under the same umbrella. Um, Sometimes it's separate, you know. Um, But she still has to go through, she still had to go through, as you said, seven different committees. You know, like sometimes they don't tell you, right? They just like leave it up to somebody's imagination. Um, I don't know what the approval process was there, which is probably (laughs) part of the, that's like the most frustrating part, right? Like, you know, when when a landlord, like like yourself, like here is like, oh, I got to go through committee. You're like, okay, well, what, what, what is that committee like, right? And you might have like an image in your mind, like, okay, once a month they sit around, they talk about it and marketing and operations and finance and everyone. And like one person complains about the sign and the deal's dead, right? Like that could be one scenario, but like it could just be one person is making a decision you don't know, right? You just don't know. Um, I think that's sort of a mystery and people love to use committee. Listen, everybody has a decision-making process. It's rarely one person, right? It's rarely one person at the end of the day is making a decision. The question is, is how complicated is it? How many levels of approval are there? And that's like, 
we, we like, I think we almost intentionally don't tell, we're not transparent about it. It's part of like real estate deal making, like transparency on how the approval works on either side. We don't talk about it. It's like the place you don't go. <laughs> it's so, you know, we, we, I think we all talk about like, we need to understand and empathize with the other person's process, but it, it, it's a great point. Like we, we all use this word committee. I think you put it in such an eloquent way when you said every company has a decision-making process and in real estate, it feels like we've, you know, called this word committee and there's a committee and it, it means different things everywhere. But what a simple way to put it, which is it's a decision-making process. That's what committee is. Yeah. Anyway, listen, Dave, this was great. I want to uh, take us to the last part of the show called Retail Wisdom. I got three questions for you. Are you ready? Uh, I'm ready. All right. Question one, what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Sharper image. And the reason I say that is, I mean, at least my age, right? When I was a kid and I went to a mall, sharper image was the coolest place to go. You would go and see like the coolest electronics, the coolest things. And you're like, man, I want that. It was always expensive. And you never really saw people buying things, which is likely why they went out of business. (laughs) Yeah. People were playing around with things a lot. That's for sure. Okay. Question two. What is the last item over $20 that you bought in a store? Like does grocery and takeout food count or like that's kind of boring, right? Yeah. I mean, we do get a lot of tequila. That's an answer we hear a lot, but go ahead. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll try not to do grocery and takeout because that's like such a generic answer or alcohol, right? That's, that's what your point was. Um, Yeah. We've become so fixated on buying online, particularly in the last year. Uh, Okay. I got it. Uh, we, uh, we needed to get my son baseball pants and we went to a mom and pop sporting goods store. I love it. And, and bought pants there. And I mean, listen, I, I, I respect Dick's and, you know, all these sporting goods stores, but we actually went to a mom and pop and that's, I don't know what the exact cost was, but it's probably pretty close to $20. I'm guessing. It's great. They were, they were a good retailer though. They did a good job. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, that's why they're successful. They, they have a, a great, listen, I, I, you know, we talked about baseball or they're like, I don't know exactly how a glove should fit a kid or like how high the baseball bat should be up to your waist when you're like, I don't know that stuff. They tell you there, they walk you through like, oh, what are you, what are you here for? And then you tell them and they're like, they, they could tell if you have no idea what you're doing, right? Like, <laughs> I'm that guy who walks in, you're like, yeah, we're looking for a bat, like, can you help no. us? <laughs> or like, or you say like, I'm looking for a bat. And they're like, Oh, would you like help? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> All right. Last question, Dave, if you and I were shopping in target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Uh, if you we went to target and I got, and we were, okay. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, similar to my, my love and sharper image for just random electronics. There's something about the allure of going to where all the TVs are, right? They're all showing them. They're either showing like some terrible TV show or some cool movie. It's usually one or the other. And just like looking at all the electronics, it's just like your eyes kind of like glow, right? I I would just be hanging out there. I'm not much for video games, but all the little electronics and stuff. I don't even own a lot of electronics. I just like to look at them. So I'd be hanging out there. Terrific. Well, listen, Dave, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, 
your story is fantastic. Not sure what you're doing. We need to connect offline. I'm in Philly all the time. I'm going to have to come and say hello and grab lunch with you. And if you want to connect, share ideas, kind of what a large developer in the U.S. is doing and just, you know, quarterly, something like that. We should set up a call and just continue to connect and spitball ideas, what's going on. And I can give you some insights and you could probably give me a ton. Yeah, that sounds great. Chris, thanks so much for having me on here. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.